welcome to mini episode 138 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I have five spooky stories for you today. And the last story comes from August the 5th, 2021. And story number one comes from Ryan. I inherited an old family home located in Champneys East, Newfoundland, Canada, after my grandfather passed away. The house was built around 1865 and is full of old treasures. It was an old yellow two-story salt box type home facing the ocean. Apparently it is one of the oldest houses in Trinity Bay. The house was built by my great-great-grandfather and passed down through the generations. They were merchants who owned fishing schooners and supplied the neighbouring communities with everything needed for a life in Outport, Newfoundland food, material, tools, etc. After the death of my great-grandfather at the age of 36, my great-grandmother Elizabeth moved her only son Elmo, my grandfather, to the house and restarted the store, located on the main road of the small community. She never remarried and remained in the same house for the duration of her life, alone after my grandfather moved away. She was a heavy smoker and often smoked in the house, reading novels as a pastime. My grandfather became a school teacher, along with my grandmother, and they raised their family outside of Champneys East, but they always returned for summer and Christmas visits, and my father has many fond memories of the old house. I was born in 1984, and I was four years old when my great-grandmother passed away. The house sat empty for many years, but was used as a summer home by my family. I too enjoyed many summer visits there. As a boy, I was often afraid to sleep in the bedroom at the top of the stairs. There were four bedrooms in the top of the house. Three were sleeping quarters and one was used for storage. My bedroom was at the top of the stairs, to the left, and was overlooking a grassy field and the main road through town. Often crying for my mother or father to come up and stay with me, my grandfather often took up the duty of sitting next to me until I fell asleep. I remember asking if there were ghosts in the house. He told me that he didn't know of ghosts, but if there were, they were only good ghosts, and they all loved me, and none would ever hurt me. I found this calming somehow. My father later told me that his grandmother, my great-grandmother Elizabeth, had told him that someone was born and someone had died in every room of that house. I cannot confirm if this was true or not. In the summer of 2006, my then-girlfriend, later my wife and I, went to spend a weekend in the old house as a little getaway. At the time, we were both in university, and a break from studying was welcomed. Upon arriving, there are many things that one must do to open the house and prepare it for occupancy. Turn on the electrical panel, turn on the boiler and start the oil stove, change the beds and turn on the water. I instructed my girlfriend to make up our room while I took care of the power and turned on the water. I told her we would be staying in the bedroom at the top of the stairs to the left. Now to turn on the water, one has to go across the garden to the adjacent property and turn on a water line connected to an artisan well that is shared with the neighbours. The bedroom where we would be staying is visible from the well. I left the house and made my way across the garden to the well and turned on the water line. Looking up to the window, I could see my girlfriend quite clearly standing in front of it, clutching a blanket. But she was not alone. I could see a second woman standing to her left, 
just behind her shoulder. I immediately left the well and made for the house. I was there in no greater time than 20 seconds, but by that time, my girlfriend had made it down from upstairs, through the front porch, through the front room and kitchen, into the cloakroom and out to the front step. I thought you were still in the house, she said. She was completely white and visibly shaken up. I smelled cigarette smoke and I heard you humming a song, but it sounded more like a woman. Footsteps were coming up the stairs behind me while the humming continued. I just kept making the bed and when the footsteps reached the top of the stairs, they stopped. I turned around expecting to see you and there was no one there. Then I looked out the window and you were across the garden. I calmed her as best I could. She didn't wish to stay the night, but after a sweep of the house, she felt much better and we prepared supper. I wouldn't dare tell her of the woman I had seen in the window behind her. I didn't sleep that night, and going to the washroom in the dead of night was especially spooky. The house didn't have washing facilities when it was built and they were added on in the 1960s. A piece was built onto the house to accommodate for this, and as such, one has to go downstairs and through the different connecting rooms to get to the washroom. The house cracks and creaks with the constant wind coming off the ocean. The one time I had to get up and go, I couldn't help but feel that there was someone with me the whole time. It did not feel malevolent, but spooky nonetheless. I decided then and there that if I had to go for a piss again, it would be out the fucking window or in the bed. Upon our return home, I told my father of the occurrence in the old house. I left out no details. I explained the footsteps, the cigarette smoke, the humming, and the woman in the window behind my girlfriend. Nan was always a smoker, he said, and she was always humming a tune. I've stayed in the house many times since then. I've even slept there alone. I do not fear the house or its otherworldly occupants, and I have heard and seen many strange things in that house. That's such a great way for your granddad to alleviate your fears as a child. To say, I don't know if there are any ghosts, but if they are here, they love you and they're here because they want to look out for you. Because it's not dismissing a child's fears, but it's also not adding to the fears by saying there might be ghosts and they might be here to get you. I don't know. And it makes so much sense that if something has been in your family for generations, if that property has been in your family for generations and your family, your grandparents or great grandparents were so proud of it, it makes so much sense that they would stick around because it means so much to them in life. And it probably, like really, it probably brings your grandmother joy that the house is being used, the house has life in it, the house is being used even if it's only for a weekend, to see somebody coming in and making the beds and opening the windows and doing all those things. It must be lovely. And story number two comes from Brittany. My grandfather passed away two years ago. I was very close to him and he was a sceptic to anything paranormal. He had a very specific style. At home, he wore grey sweatpants, a white under t-shirt and white tube socks that always seemed to be sliding off his feet, making the sock floppy on his toes. When he was going out for the day, he wore dark blue jeans and usually a grey or blue flannel shirt. When he was camping, he would wear a white fishing hat. He would wear the shirts that had large animals on them, specifically wolves, uncomfortably short denim shorts, his white tube socks and white Nike tennis shoes. I had moved into a new apartment a couple of years before he passed. 
it was the first time I'd ever lived alone. I had just finished unpacking my living room, and I had noticed that it was about two in the morning. I hadn't set up my bedroom yet, so I had to sleep on my couch. I had just turned off the light and laid down facing the back of the couch, and that is when I felt like someone was watching me. Thinking it was just because I was facing the couch, I flipped over and standing in the doorway was a man. This man looked identical to my grandfather, grey sweatpants all the way to the floppy toe socks. We stared at each other for what felt like an eternity, even though it was probably a matter of seconds. He was gone as soon as I blinked. I was so certain it was him that I called home at 2am to make sure he was alright. He was, thankfully. I told him of my experience and he swore up and down that I described his father. He would ask me in the following years if I had seen him again and I was almost heartbroken that I hadn't. The next two stories were dreams after he had passed but there was something very different about these two in particular. About a month after he passed I had a dream about something that I can't quite remember. In the dream I had gotten a phone call from my mom that if I wanted to see my grandpa before he had to go I needed to come to her house. I showed up at her house and was told to wait at the top of the stairs that came up from my grandparents basement apartment. I was so worried that my siblings were going to miss him. I kept stepping away from the stairs and my mom said if I move from my spot I will miss seeing him. I stayed put, crying because if he had to go I wanted my siblings to say goodbye too. He finally came up the stairs, embraced me in a hug and said, sorry it took so long kid, but no I love you very much. I told him I missed him and needed him to stay. He told me he couldn't stay. He let me go and walked away. My dream then went back to the dream I was having before the phone call like nothing happened. My second dream happened about two weeks ago. Again I was having a mundane dream about my mom and I, you know weird dream stuff. My dream again abruptly changed and I walked into the break room at my job. Sitting in the chair across the room was my grandfather. He stood up, standing in his camping hat and uncomfortably short shorts and said, Took you long enough, kid. I wanted to make sure my mom saw her dad and when I looked back she was gone. I woke up crying because I felt like I had missed the opportunity to talk to him and since it's been two years since his last visit, I don't know how long it'll take him to visit again. I later found out my mom had been camping that weekend. I think he stopped to see me and her in the ways that he could. I always end up saying the same things when we have these stories about loved ones coming to visit people in their dreams after they've passed. And that is that if you take comfort from it, take comfort from it. Be happy that this has happened to you and embrace it. And your granddad sounds like a stylish man. I'm loving the short shorts. I'm loving the wolf t-shirt. I too wear my socks in a very particular way. I too have them sort of hanging off my feet because it feels more comfortable than wearing them properly. So me and your granddad, we are obviously fashionistas, fashion icons. And story number three comes from Ben. I'm a tour guide and have worked in several haunted places in Charleston, South Carolina in the US. The city was founded in 1670 and has had its share of haunted and sordid history. I would say that I'm not fully convinced that ghosts are active spirits, but I'm open-minded. A joke with my friends is that that makes me a ghostic 
instead of agnostic. But the older I get, the more open-minded I became to the idea of ghosts. Regardless, I've had a lot of strange things happen in my years working in the historic district that fit well within what you could call residual haunts or unexplained encounters that fall short of seeing a ghost. They were enough to creep me out, however. When I was in university, I was an in-costume tour guide at the Revolutionary War Dungeon, where the British kept American prisoners in terrible conditions. Dozens died there between 1780 and 1782. My friends frequently had doors slammed on them, heard voices, and there was one time I was finishing up a tour where I swore I saw someone standing right behind me out of my peripheral vision. I looked back and there was no one there. To this day, I'm not entirely sure what it was enough to scurry me out of my tour quickly that day. There have been other encounters in the historic district that have given me the creeps. When I was working late doing grading in my office as a history instructor at our local university, I heard footsteps down the hall. Security and maintenance staff were not there, and I was well awake enough to know that I wasn't hallucinating. The grounds of the university, ironically, were also a Revolutionary War prison camp or hospital in 1780 and faced a great amount of bombardment in the Civil War. One night, not long after, I decided to leave an EVP reader on my app on my phone while I did my work. Couldn't be much harm, right? Until it said, Entity Detected, and Iva moosed out of there quickly and ended grading for the night. My final encounter with what you might call residual energy occurred while training to give ghost tours in a Victorian cemetery. This may be one of the creepiest cemeteries I've ever visited and has 35,000 graves, alligators and orb weaver spiders hanging from every tree. As an arachnophobe, that is almost as scary to me as the idea of ghosts. My friend and I were training and walking by Confederate soldier graves from the Civil War when all of a sudden we heard the voice of a man talking. We couldn't make out what was being said. Being that it was 12am and we were the only ones with a key, there was no way someone snuck into the graveyard. There is a neighbourhood nearby that potentially could have produced ambient noise, but this voice was almost right next to us. Neither of us had our phones on as we were practising giving our tour. At that point I chalked it up to yet another case of the past being alive in Charleston. I'm pretty sure that being a tour guide puts you in a position where you're going to experience much more of those echoes through time than the kind of regular person because you inherently end up spending an inordinate amount of time in these places that have a pretty crazy history and often a history that is fueled by violence and war and pain and sorrow and all of those things that contribute to the theory that the more active a place is during its lifespan as a building the more likely it is to have these echoes through time these residual hauntings and residual energies i always feel like i sound like i'm trying to be all ghost adventures when i say residual hauntings or residual energies and story number four comes from cody and before i start this story this story was actually written for a podcast so it's written in kind of a prose style there is nothing more iconic than the three-minute shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, where in a series of 50 chaotic cuts, we are exposed to blade and blood, or chocolate syrup in this case. 
as Bates plunges down into Janet Lee's naked body. And yet the scene loses its luster if you watch it on mute. We need the pulsing violin strings, the sound effect of knife plunging into a watermelon, the white noise of the showers flowing water, and most importantly, Lee's ear-piercing screams. I could also mention the opening scene of Jaws, where, as the sun sets, a beautiful woman goes skinny-dipping in the ocean, and just after entering the calm, dark water, she is violently thrashed from side to side, screaming between gulps of water until she's pulled beneath by the infamous shark, silenced by the deep. Cinematic brilliance. I must admit, as engrossing as these movies are, as we sit eating our buttered popcorn and malt balls, there remains a quiet assurance lingering in the back of our minds. We understand by the end of the 90 minutes or so that the credits will roll and will be released back into the safety of our reality, the norm. It's a similar case with our nightmares, the comfort that rushes over us as we wake to find ourselves still in bed. It was only a dream, we tell ourselves, only a dream. But what happens when it isn't? Just how permeable is the boundary between dreams and reality? It was a dream my father had that kept me picking away at this question, unable to leave it alone, like leftover pizza. And it was for good reason, because although we didn't know it at the time, it was a dream that would tie my father directly to a woman's murder. And let me just say I know how that sounds, like I'm pitching a hook for some cheap murder mystery novel, and yes, you have my permission to roll your eyes. However, humour me, because you need to know a little bit about my dad. He married his childhood sweetheart, the old football player cheerleader narrative, and they've stayed in love and stayed married ever since. You'd probably agree that he looks a little like Robin Williams, and regardless of your walk in life, if you met him out and about, you'd feel like you were sitting fireside with an old friend. He's genuine, the real McCoy. People won't just say they know my father. Their faces light up as they dearly recall him. To this day, he owns and operates his own appliance repair business. And if he has a gap between service calls, you'll find him in the cab of his van, playing along to the radio on his harmonica, reading from the good book or enjoying a quick burger. On Sundays, he'll often lay down by the toy box and play cars or Barbies with one of his eight grandkids who call him Papa Coons and he absolutely adores them. Now I'll tell you what he isn't. No, he doesn't hold monthly Ouija board potlucks or have a dream journal blog he updates weekly or advertise tarot card readings on Facebook for a reasonable reading fee. He doesn't have visions or claim to be a medium. And until this dream, I've never heard him speak of a dream or anything like one which made it even more naggingly weird. But dreams are weird things to begin with. On average, we forget 90% of them in the first five minutes of being awake, and we dream the most as newborns, which I assume would be true for anyone sleeping 16 to 18 hours a day. Sign me up to put that theory to the test. The truth is we don't understand why we dream all that much. We find we can dream of places and people that to the best of our knowledge we've never seen or known. Yet our best explanation is simply that the average person sees about 3 million faces in their lifetime, Perhaps you stood behind them in line at the grocery store, or shared an elevator. 
It could be that these strangers become headshots, filed away in our subconscious, that provide our dreams with an unlimited cast for the random roles played out in our dreams. Now, I wish this was the case with my father's dream, that the woman was someone he had seen while pumping gas at a 7-Eleven or walking her dog at a park downtown. However, it wouldn't have made any difference, because he never saw her in his dream. My father had an auditory dream. It's the type of dream a person who was blind from birth would have. Sounds but no images, a book without pictures. And what he heard was screaming. Now this wasn't the screaming that you're used to hearing, like from the clambering of children at recess or from the spiralling tracks of a roller coaster. It's the screaming you hope you never hear, so shrill and primal that it raises the hair on your neck and makes goosebumps perk across your exposed skin. That's why when my father woke, he immediately went about the house and yard searching for someone in need of help, but it was to no avail. When he relayed the experience to my mother, he was visibly shaken and pale. Even as he shared the account with the rest of the family, sometime later, it was clear the disembodied screaming still weighed heavily on his mind. It was something my father tried to forget, or put behind him in the days that followed. However, it was proven in vain, because he heard it again, the exact agonising scream, even from the exact distance he had heard it from, he said. Only this time it wasn't in that threshold between consciousness and sleep. He was very much awake. I'm sure you've seen this painting on commercials, history or art class. It depicts the open sea with blue and silver swirls that seem to refuse the reflection of the blood orange sky above it. On the left side of the painting, you'll notice a boardwalk stretching on indefinitely between two eerie human figures composed of shadow and silhouette. However, it's the third figure that stands at the forefront of the boardwalk that has haunted onlookers since its creation in 1893. The figure is inhuman and sickly, a black twisted torso winds up into a narrow neck supporting a large warped head. The figure's flesh is ashen and its face accentuated by two nostrils that are painted like two dark knots in diseased wood. The creature's snake egg eyes sit askew above a gaping mouth framed in thin blackened lips. The figure's pasty fused hands pressed against its sunken cheeks. Think of Macaulay Culkin's aftershave scene in Home Alone. Only in this version, he's an emaciated alien. Edward Munch appropriately called this painting The Scream. Munch wrote of the experiences that inspired the painting while looking over a long strip of water. He said, One evening I was walking along a path. The city was on one side and the fjord below. I felt tired and ill. I stopped and looked out over the fjord. The sun was setting and the clouds turning blood red. I sensed a scream passing through nature. It seemed to me that I heard the scream. I painted this picture, painted the clouds as actual blood, the colour shrieked, and this became the scream. There are speculations, of course, like the blood-red sky described in his diary was from the volcanic eruption of Krakatoa that throughout the Western Hemisphere turned the horizon a blazing red. And when he referred to feeling sick, some have ventured to attribute it to a slaughterhouse local to the area of that town, 
which often filled the streets with an enduring reek that clung to the breeze and the waterways. Makes me think of the labyrinth. Here lies the bogs of eternal stench, the refuge for the refused. Was it enough to turn his stomach, perhaps? The coincidental aspect, though, was his mention of actually hearing a scream. Along this same road overlooking Oslo, there is an asylum, one where Edward's manic-depressive sister was a patient. Perhaps it was the screams that often adorned the halls of these institutions that conjured his muse after visiting his sister. Whatever your opinion of the painting may be, there is no denying its universal application. Whether it's conjured from an eerie dream, the many pages of history, or just beyond the reach of a streetlight, it spans culture, belief and race. It appeals to a primal instinct, our inherent distress call, the human scream. Eva Hart was seven years old when she looked out over the ocean water at a horde of screaming tourists. Her experience sounds common enough. If she were at a crowded beach, lined with minibar cabanas and surfboard rental shops. Throw in about a dozen meatheads hitting on the skimpy bikini girls who all the while are endlessly oiling and lotioning and to top it off add a few creepers peeping in the background and you've got yourself a regular paradise. Like Eva Hart, you'd undoubtedly hear screaming, perhaps jestful, flirting of new lovers or the yelp of a newbie surfer as the board slips out from beneath him. However, in Eva's story, the screams were of a darker nature. You see, it was April the 15th, 1912, and the horde of tourists weren't a wild spring break crowd in Mexico. They were the dying passengers of the Titanic. In her words, she shares, I remember the people. I remember the terrible noise coming from 1,500 drowning people. How can you say what that sounded like? The screams. For some, what followed seemed worse. After the screams, there was dead silence. As much as I respect Leonardo as an actor, and as much as I respect Kate Winslet's boobs as a 13-year-old, when I think of the Titanic, it's Eva's recollection of those final screams that I recall. Few things are as lasting as the jagged emotional scars caused by the pure adrenaline accompanying those that perceive themselves or find themselves standing at the brink of death. Whether they live to wear those scars or not is often a coin toss, heads or tails. Perhaps it's the heightened senses caused by the fight or flight response that give the scream its enduring, disturbing quality, which would explain the exasperation behind the phrase screaming bloody murder. Studies were done where brain scans of volunteers who were exposed to screaming showed that along with the auditory cortex, which is commonly engaged with processing sound, the screaming triggers the emotional core, the brain's fear factory. The more variation or roughness in the scream, the greater the effect it had on the volunteers. It's hard to say given the controlled environment if the studies capture the entire scope of the human scream because screams are a hallmark of chaos. Rarely are they fostered by a controlled environment. After six months of running the same paper route in the same neighborhood, my second eldest brother found himself playing tug of war with his leg and a feral dog. The dog had ran up on him as he was folding newspapers on the corner. He explained that there was a point when the dog began ripping through his pant leg that he screamed in a manner he had never heard come from his lungs before. Kicking at the dog's face, he finally ripped his leg free 
and escaped by throwing himself over a nearby fence. Needless to say, he carried dog mace every morning after that. It was five years later, and he was reintroduced to this carnal scream, only not coming from him. After he graduated from high school, he was working the swing shift at a hotel called the Kempis, a beautiful historical building just up the hill from downtown Spokane. If you ever visit, I encourage you to note the two lion statues that seemingly stand guard at the entrance, keeping unwelcome guests away. Or if you believe it to be haunted like many do, you could argue the lions are keeping something in. That particular night, the chef on staff shared the gourmet leftovers with my brother, which was a nice break from the tin of Altoids he had been sucking through while manning the front desk. The windows lining the outer wall of the main dining room were open, letting the cool night air in and clearing out the smell of fish, which was featured on the dinner menu that evening. From the darkness beyond the reach of the streetlights, a blood-curdling scream ripped through the open windows. The horrific shriek left my brother and the chef in hair-raising silence. They exchanged their finest what-the-fuck-was-that expression, and then together they approached the windows and began scanning the city streets for a possible source. There was the usual flicker of headlights on the freeway below, the weakening echo of a train whistle, and the layered silhouettes of maple trees rustling across from them, but nothing that would explain the tormented wail that drew them to the windows. However, a few days later, my brother was shown a newspaper article and discovered that only a block away from the hotel on that very night, a mentally ill woman stripped herself naked and climbed a crane, which shadowed a remodel project of the local high school. After securing a rope to the crane's crossbars, she slipped the other end around her neck and stepped off taking her own life. Now of the estimated 2,000 people who have thrown themselves off the Golden Gate Bridge since 1937, we know of 19 who actually survived the attempt. If you ask any one of them what the first thing that came to their mind was after jumping, you get the same answer. Kevin Hines, a Golden Gate survivor who attempted suicide at the age of 19, explained that after leaping off the bridge into an 18-storey freefall, he thought, What have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. An instant terrifying regret. With that said, my brother has had no doubt that the shrill scream that summer's night was a woman's last plea for life, given in the millisecond before death. Whether produced in terror, pleasure or both, screaming is an instrument of passion. It has the power to evoke emotion, which is what many artists perceive as the ultimate summation of their completed works, whether that's a painting, a film, a story or a song. And frankly, if you feel nothing listening to my story, in many ways I failed. Take the blues singer Screaming Joe Hawkins into consideration. If his name is unfamiliar to you, I can guarantee his music isn't. Not a Halloween goes by where I don't hear the lyrics. I put a spell on you, because you're mine. You better stop the things you do. I tell you, I ain't lying. In the 1950s, before Jay Hawkins was screaming, he wrote I put a spell on you, intending it to be a bluesy love song. However, when he and his band went into the studio to record the song, their producer showed up with ribs, chicken and plenty of booze to wash it down. As can happen among friends and good food, the night got away from them. 
Screamin' Jay says he was so drunk during the original recording of I Put a Spell on You that he eventually blacked out and remembered very little of ever singing it. After they sobered up though and listened to the recording, they discovered something very different from the bluesy love song Hawkins intended. Instead, a hymn of howls, groans and guttural screaming poured over the accompaniment and came across much as he was at the time. Intoxicating. Now you can imagine in the mid-1950s, in a black and white, leave it to beaver world where the parents slept in separate beds, that a song this radical and raw received a lot of negative attention. But it was attention nonetheless and the record sold over a million copies. Often in his earlier performances he'd arrive on stage in a coffin and rise from it wearing a plush cape and have white tusks protruding from his nostrils. He'd often use fog to blanket the stage encircling him as he flaunted rubber snakes or his signature cigarette-smoking skull on a stick which he named Harry. His performance and sensational screaming of the words I put a spell on you because you're mine branded him Screaming Jay Hawkins. As funky and odd as his performance may appear, his legacy gave roots to the shock rock genre, inspiring the screaming careers of artists like Alice Cooper and Ozzy Osbourne. However, it could be said his haunting performance was haunting him the most. Forced to feed his popularity by performing his song that he later confided felt as though he was destroying it. I imagine it wore on him, night after night, taking his creation, his bluesy love song, and slaughtering it to please the crowd. He spent the rest of his life like Dr. Jekyll towards the end, when his alternative persona, Mr. Hyde, grew to overpower him and I Put a Spell on You became something he began resenting, refusing many of the royalties that came from it. His consequent albums met mediocre success at best, and in his personal life he struggled maintaining relationships. In a falling out with a band member he was stabbed, and was married to six different women. It is estimated that between his six wives, his girlfriends and his groupies that he fathered 56 children, a man chasing shadows. I'm sure at first he screamed for his fans, but by the end his screams were a raw response of his tormented heart. Whether those screams are swallowed by the frigid ocean, cut short by a noose, or forever replayed as a song on the radio, they are, as Willy Wonka would put it, a psychological everlasting gobstopper. You can suck them and suck them forever and they never get any smaller. And I believe it was intended that way. At age 55, Charlotte McGill was living happily with her daughter and worked at Costco, where those that had the chance to work with her found her infectiously cheerful and kind. She loved getting up early and walking her dog along a nearby river trail, enjoying the brisk air and giving her dog some exercise. Having walked along this side of the river very many times growing up, I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of her favourite routines. On this particular morning, her favourite walk would wind up becoming her last. Before she even knew she was being followed, a man rushed up behind her and in a blur of blood and blade, the stranger stabbed her with a knife. She screamed for help while struggling to fight off her attacker, fueled by her only weapon, adrenaline. Maybe the assailant was worried that she would draw too much attention, but he disappeared down the trail, leaving Charlotte to stagger away, in shock and screaming desperately for help, having been stabbed in the chest and face 11 times. But help soon came. A man who had heard her screams 
but days before she was even attacked. A man who had already gone looking for her once. Only this time he found her. My father. He had been on a scheduled service call at a nearby apartment complex that very morning, and as soon as her screams started coming up from the riverbank, he ran towards them. Shortly after, surgeons tried to save Charlotte that day, however it was just too much and she passed away. Now humans tried to explain the unexplainable to apply as much reason and vague evidence to draw some shadow of an answer, and perhaps a shadow was good enough in my father's case. If it wasn't to save her life, was it so he could relay Charlotte's description to the 911 operator? A man with a bad eye wearing a hooded sweatshirt, she told him. The man would assault two other women before he was apprehended by the investigators. Would there have been a fourth without Charlotte's dying witness? However, it was my eldest brother who shared a purpose for my father's presence that fateful morning that rings true to my mind and my heart. If you were brutally attacked and left terrified and shaking in agony, facing that final journey with only a stranger within earshot of your screams for help, there is no question you'd want that stranger to be someone as kind-hearted as my dad. Heroes aren't always there to save the day. Instead, when the day is lost, they kneel beside you, holding your hand as you face the night. I'm not going to add any further commentary to that story, because sitting here and poring over the sort of paranormal elements, etc., etc., will take away from the fact that at the core of this story, a woman was murdered. And perhaps if your dad hadn't had that dream and hadn't had that experience, maybe he wouldn't have ran towards the sound of screams. Maybe he would have ignored them and just assumed it was something that wasn't any of his business. And story number five today comes from Jamie. It started when I was younger, around the age of 10. I would have this reoccurring nightmare at least once a week where I could hear noises from a vent in my room and it would make me feel uncomfortable and annoy me. I would kneel on my bed and crawl to it and tell whatever it was to shut up. It never would and I would start to feel uneasy as it would get louder. At this point, I know I shouldn't talk to this thing but I couldn't control myself in these dreams and I would continue to shout, shut up. The louder it got, the louder I got and I could feel the blood pump through me as I would try to pull myself away from this vent. But it would get worse and worse with both me and the noise getting louder and I would suddenly wake in a ball of sweat. This would happen weekly until I was around 13. Then one night I started having the same dream but this time the vent door was open and I couldn't hear the noise. I was confused and then got up and crawled towards the vent once again and I saw something deep in the darkness. It was a darker mass but I couldn't work out what it was. Then the noise started and it was coming from this thing. Once again, even though I told myself not to, I told this thing to shut up. I lost control of myself again, and I would just shout at this thing, telling it to shut up over and over, and it got louder, so loud I couldn't handle it, and then it came towards me so quickly. I would wake in a ball of sweat. These dreams took a turn for the worst, because this thing would randomly turn up in dreams, and I felt like it had me. I would be having a normal dream like being out with friends and I would notice this black mass in the street and the dream me would be fixated on this and everything else would disappear and I would start shouting at this thing again. It would always be facing away from me till I started shouting and then it would slowly turn. 
And when it started to slowly turn, I was back in my bed, stuck, glued to the bed, and it was just turned to face me and it would disappear and I would be able to move again. This would happen at least once a month of this thing randomly popping up. Now I'm 23, so I've gotten used to it, but it's always the same result. Sometimes my girlfriend would wake me before I got stuck to the bed because she said I would be breathing so quickly and fidgeting so much it would wake her so she would wake me. But when she does, I don't remember it until she mentions it to me the next morning. But the reason I'm now writing this to you is because it got so real for me the other morning. My girlfriend had to get up and go to work and I decided to have a lay-in. I was dozing in and out of sleep, but I wasn't dreaming at all. But then all of a sudden, I had a shot of adrenaline all through my body and I was stuck still. I was awake and could see my bed. I could see the sunlight in the room, but all I could move was my eyes. Then the noise started again, but this time it was words. Lots and lots of words, but at random. It wasn't making any sense and it was so quick. And then at that point I realised this noise that I had been hearing, it had always been words. I just didn't realise it until now. The words wouldn't stop. Then I heard someone pacing from the window to the door repeatedly and they were just out of my line of sight. I still couldn't move. It was so real, it felt like everything was happening in real time till the door slammed and everything stopped all at once and I was able to move again. I got up and looked around the house to see who was at home and to see if they had wandered into my room. But it was only my girlfriend's granddad and he never leaves his room and never comes upstairs. I can't explain this last one as I thought I was awake because I remember looking at my phone just before. It was 8.40 and by the time it was over I looked again and it was 8.51. That's 11 minutes that I'd gotten into a deep sleep that quickly and had time to see and hear all of this. That was my last experience and I just hope it doesn't get any worse from here. I hope for your sake too, Jamie, that it doesn't get any worse, because that sounds pretty crazy. That sounds pretty terrifying, and I would not like to experience that myself at all. Although for future reference, like, I don't know, I've never experienced sleep paralysis, and but obviously reading so many accounts of it on the podcast, apparently if you focus on trying to move one part of your body, like even if it's moving a finger that can help you snap out of the sleep paralysis state. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to Ryan, Brittany, Jamie, Ben and Cody for sending in your stories. If you would like to know anything about Real Life Ghost Stories, you can find out everything that you need to know on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. Remember, the last story came from August the 5th, 2021 and we will be back doing main episodes really soon in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much for your patience. And on that note, I shall see you next time.